Amen. You may be seated. Well, welcome to HBF. And uh, wow, it has been a great week, a busy week for uh, many of us and uh, or most of us, all of us probably, I'm sure. And what a great week it's been to be a part of the, the annual Bible conference. And so um, I want you to just kind of, I know everybody's weary. You know, the Bible tells us not to be weary and well-doing. So this is what we're going to do today. So we're going to just jog in place for a minute and then... Uh, and then, uh, then you can sit down and take a nap this afternoon, alright? And I don't mean physically jog in place, uh, but if you have your Bibles, we turn to the book of 1 Samuel chapter, uh, chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13, and we'll be in verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, or if you're a guest with us, and, uh, whatever the case may be, you can grab a Bible from the seat rack in front of you, or if you got a guest bag, uh, you could grab one out of there, be per- turning to page 424 in that HBF Bible that you have there. And uh, we'll be we'll be picking up this morning uh, in First Samuel chapter 13, and um, and so it's in the first third of of your Bible there in the very toward the beginning, and so uh, this morning it's it's been a wonderful week and we've labored and labored mightily. Uh, all the Bibles are uh, obviously collated. They were done this week, uh, bound, so that got finished up uh, Friday, and then uh, they are. Uh, stage to finish cutting in the armory right now. Hallelujah. Isn't that awesome? Amen. Amen. Yeah. Now, I don't know. Yeah, give the Lord a hand. Praise God. You guys are so tired you can't even clap. Praise the Lord. So, uh, so listen, um, I, the, uh, the, the amount of Bibles, Bob, I don't know. Do we, we don't know those until they're cut. Exactly. But we're guessing 20, easily 20,000. I'm, I might think we might have a few more than that, actually. So it'll be interesting to see what, finally uh, gets extrapolated out of that, but but uh, you all have labored very hard, and, and uh, I pray the Lord will continue to bless you and his word as it goes forth. And uh, and so, as we're recouping this morning, I want to just focus a little bit on the subject of the word of God as we kind of wrap up and put a bow on everything that we've done. This last Sunday, we started that, the conference dealing with having a heart to publish the word of God. And many years ago, a preacher of little notoriety traveled among all the Baptist churches, uh, making a case that the stewardship of, the, of publishing God's word should be handled by the local New Testament churches. And I think he's right. And so um, the Bible tells us that we buy the truth and we sell it not. And so publishing houses are in uh, publishing God's word for the prophet, obviously. Uh, and when Don Frazier was preaching uh, back in the late 60s and early 70s and going around to Baptist churches, getting them to buy in on the concept of investing in Publishing the Word of God. I mean, you heard last week that the testimony of First Baptist of Milford, they didn't have a press uh, initially. They just wrote it out by hand, the entire congregation. I've actually seen that Bible. And they were committed not, not to a printing press. They were committed to the, the precept, right, of we are stewards of God's Word. And so that's why we're in First Samuel chapter 13. I, I intended... Uh, to have a message uh, solely on this this concept of how we steward the word of God and how, in the time of King Saul, uh, there were no swords to be found. The Philistines controlled the, the market on swords, and um, and so there were only two swords. And this message is called the Tale of Two Swords. And so uh, this is a story of two swords that were found in the nation of Israel. But as I got into this, God kind of changed my direction, and he showed me that there's a bigger issue. I mean, even than that, you're like, how can you have a bigger issue, of, you know, going to battle without a sword? You know, that, well, that seems like a huge issue. But really, that's a symptom. That's what God showed me as I was prepping this message. I, I realized that not having the word of God where, where it needs to be, 
whether it's preached or in the hands of people, is not really, it's a, it's, don't get me wrong, it's a problem. It's a problem like going to battle without any weapons or like going to, going to war without a gun, right? I mean, those are big problems. That, don't get me wrong. I don't want to minimize the, the impact of that. That is huge. You need Bibles and you need, and, and you need to be able to get the Bible where it needs to go uh, in the written form, in the, in the spoken form. Everywhere, that is the mission. That's the Great Commission. We get that. But there are cases when we're not good stewards of what God has given us. And when that happens, um, you know what? The indication, there's a reason. And and Dale Money did a great job of talking about some of the obstacles, right, to getting to the world. Those aren't God's obstacles. Those are our obstacles, right? When we don't make it and we don't get ourselves out of the way to allow God to have his way with us so that his will can be done. This is really about an interaction between us and God. And I say us, I don't mean just in the Old Testament us, I mean us today. And our and our commitment to the process, of course, and the precept of, of stewarding the word of God and getting it where it needs to go. That starts right here where we are, but it's also, we know it, need, it means we need to be committed to going everywhere. Now, back when Don Frazier was preaching... Uh, and this whole concept, uh, you know, I'm sure it's been around forever, but but among uh, Baptists in America, you know, there was there was only, um, you know, 42 percent of the earth's population that could even read. Think about that. So nearly 60 percent of the earth's population was illiterate. And that was in 19 in the 60s and early 70s. That wasn't that long ago in 50 years. Today, 87% of the world's population is literate, and in developed countries, it's 99%. There's always a small fraction, perhaps, but 99 to 100%, in essence, statistically, of the, of the population. So out of the entire world, undeveloped, developed, 87% of the world is literate today. Many of them speak English, but not all. And, of course, now, 50 years later, we're, as you know, I'm, I'm exercised, I'm stressed and distressed about the need to translate also the Bible to get it where it needs to go in the heart language of people, which is what we've been also focusing on the last several years, and we highlighted that this week as well. All right, so, so as we progress through the week, we examine the history of publishing, how to publish God's Word, uh, or the, the, uh, the, how, to, how publishing God's Word, I'm sorry, builds the Philadelphian partnerships, it opens doors to world missions, it creates a divine need uh, for translation, as I just mentioned in the heart language of the people. Those are the things we've covered. So as we conclude, I want you to consider this tale of two swords. One is an effective uh, sword and the other is an ineffective sword. One sword is represented by King Saul and the other is represented by his son Jonathan. Both had access to a sword, but they had drastically different outcomes. So before we read our text, just give you a little bit of background about what was going on in 1 Samuel chapter 13. God's people were in a place... That required faith. Uh, they, they only had two swords available against an army that vastly outnumbered them, outsupplied them, uh, and uh, could easily de- destroy them. And one sword brings victory. That's the end of the story, praise God. And the other uh, was really a sort of disobedience and discouragement to the people of God. So if you have your Bibles, let's stand together. Uh, we're going to look at this text, First uh, Samuel chapter 13. First Samuel 13. And I'm going to take you to the middle, uh, or really the end, I should say. The, it's the middle of my message. It's the end of chapter 13. We're going to examine both chapters this morning, 13 and 14. First Samuel chapter 13, this will be the heart of our text, and I'll build the rest of what we're going to look at around this here in just a moment. First Samuel 13 and verse 19. Now, 
There was no smith, and we're talking about a blacksmith, there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share and his coulter and his axe and his mattock. Yet they had a file for the mattocks and for the coulters and for the forks and for the axes and to sharpen the goads. So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. But with Saul and with Jonathan, his son, was there found. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the passage of Michmash. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you uh, for dropping us right in the middle of this story. It's, it's right in the middle of a real battle, right in the middle of a real war zone, and, and they're without sword. Lord, they're taking farm implements to battle. They're not taking the things that they need to accomplish the mission. They're taking what's in their hand, and, and Lord, we know you use what's in our hand. Even if it's imperfect, even if it's not exactly designed for the task, Lord, you, you use all of us in that way. Lord, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for your grace and your mercy. We're thankful for the opportunity, though, to have swords. Uh, physical is not what I'm talking about, Lord. You know your word is a sharp two-edged sword, and we're thankful to have it this morning. We're thankful to open it this morning. We're thankful to steward it today. We're thankful to send it to places like Ukraine where there are real battles going on and where the sword of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord, needs to be found in a mighty way to save all that are there. Oh, Heavenly Father, we're thankful for engaging us in these great um, situations, allowing us to have a part in, uh, in this, and even in this geopolitical battle that's going on, we pray, God, the spiritual battle between light and dark would be won by you and your word would go forth and shine brightly. And, Lord, we pray that right here in the midst of this crooked and perverse nation, Lord, that your word would shine brightly as a light that shines until the day of Christ. Lord, may we continue to grow brighter and brighter, even if the world grows darker and darker. We thank you and we praise you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we see here that the enemy has removed the ability of the children of Israel to arm themselves in fear that they would liberate themselves from the power of their enemy. Of course, it would uh, be equivalent to eliminating the Second Amendment here in the United States, and that wouldn't be good. Uh, so it would be illegal to possess a weapon. And, of course, when that happens historically, uh, then you get tyranny, and then tyranny brings death, right? So historically, since you know the 1900s, um, uh, that's been played out over and over with uh, Hitler and Mao and Stalin and Pol Pot and many other tyrannical leaders, right? They, de- they de-weaponize people and then they control them or kill them if they, um, you know, if they don't toe the party line, very literally, in a Marxist situation. So, so that's sort of the situation Israel at the time is under, right? They, they got to toe the line or the Philistines will invade. And, when, and Philistines obviously were concerned about their ability to defend themselves or they wouldn't have limited their ability to get to weapons, right? And so, and so that's, it's, a, it's a very um, strategic thing for the Philistines to do. And, and I'm not using this passage, by the way, to make a case uh, for the Second Amendment. I want to talk about this morning something even more important than a physical weapon. I'm talking about uh, this Bible, right? The Bible that you hold in your hands. This is the most important weapon you will ever have in your life. Uh, this is, uh, you know, Edward uh, Bulwer-Lytton said, the pen is mightier than the sword, right? We've all heard that. Well, God has written his word. His inspired word has been preserved in the text in which we have, and God has given us his word. In Hebrews 4.12, the Bible itself says, right, it is a sharp two-edged sword. 
And it penetrates to the heart of the people. That's why people like Mao said religion is the opiate of the people. But it's not just that the the Bible makes you drunk. Mao knew that the Bible changes people. And that's why they had to eliminate. And to this day, China eliminates Christians and Christianity because they understand that Bible-believing Christianity is a threat to totalitarian rule because God wants people to be free from sin right not just tyranny not just this not he wants us to be free from sin so we can serve him and one another in love right god has designed it that way that's what his will is and that's what he wants to have done and so it's more important to hold fast the faithful words of scripture uh, because they've been preserved for us it's more important than your ar-15 and that could become controversial but some people wouldn't think that oh no that's not true well hey beloved at the end of the day you better have this It ain't going to matter what's in your hand. You need to have the words of God. You can afford to lose your life if you're born again. You can afford to lose this life, but you cannot afford to lose your soul. Nobody can afford to lose their soul. Uh, And so uh, Jesus even said that. What if you gain the whole world, right, and lose your soul? It doesn't matter if you're the chief kahuna in charge. If you aren't saved, you're going to die and bust hell wide open. God is not a respecter of persons. And so when we're dealing with God Almighty and we're dealing with his word, it, it just it levels the playing field. And everybody must give account. And so that is why the word of God is so important, because we have the authority that comes with it. It is a sharp, two-edged sword. And there is a sword uh, that, we, that, uh, that we see in this text that is effective, and then we see a sword that isn't effective. And I could talk about critical text and the received text and all of those things, but I'm not going to do that this morning, because even over and above that, even if you have the exact same perfect sword, there are some things that can affect uh, how it's used and how, how it's employed. And this really loops us right back to where we started last week with Al Braley, and that is ultimately the heart. What is, how is our heart in relation to using this sword, employing it the way God has called us to employ it? So if you have your Bibles, turn to Joshua chapter 23. Now keep your spot here. We'll be back to 1 Samuel. And I am going to move briskly. That's why I'm telling you, you're jogging in place today. So get ready to start jogging. Uh, we'll get a light sweat going, and when we're done, uh, you'll be able to do cool down, go eat some lunch, and take a nap this afternoon. So number one on your outline, the first point that we're seeing is the sword of faithlessness. The sword of faithlessness. That was what was held in the hand of Saul, the sword of faithlessness. Now, that's not what God intended. The sword of faithlessness is typified by Saul. He's a, he had a mighty sword, but it was useless because it was not coupled with obedient faith. Today, there is a Bible produced from a text that has been corrupted by conjecture and humanism. And it's no accident that we see Saul losing his inheritance in 1 Samuel 13. He was the selection of the people, and he depended upon himself and the people instead of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to win the victory. Jehovah was not who he was leaning on. His life and his sword are the subject of contrast between his son Jonathan and Jonathan's best friend David. David would not use his sword either. When David went out to battle to deliver the nation of Israel, he he left Saul's armor and his sword to the side and took what was in his hand. Why? Because that armor and that sword that Saul had wasn't in the hand of a man that had a heart for God. I'm not saying God didn't use it and God couldn't get a victory from it. God can do whatever he wants. He can make Balaam's ass speak. God can do whatever he wants. But when he was looking for people to deliver souls, when he was looking for victory, (laughs) nine times out of ten, he was looking for a man that had a heart, a heart for his word. And at times he would literally put a sword in that man's hand in the Old Testament, a literal sword. But what God needs today is men and women that have a heart for God. They need to have a heart for God's word so that they can use the words of God right and they can make an impact in the relationships that they have in this world. 
Right. There needs to be people in our sphere of influence coming to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. There need to be people's lives changed through the process of discipleship. There should be an impact wherever we go. (laughs) People should say, wow, what is it about them? It is not our personality. It's not our knowledge. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. It is the power of God Almighty. There was some power lacking when it came to Saul. He had all the position. He had all the pomp, but he didn't have the power that his son Jonathan had. When we utilize the wrong sword, it leaves us defenseless, delusional, desperate, distressed, disobedient, depleted, and disadvantaged. And so your first point for study this morning is the sword of faithlessness <coughs> leaves you defenseless. I told you to turn to Joshua 23 and verse 6. Uh, and we will see here in the text Joshua 23 and verse 6 <clears throat> some things. It says, be therefore very courageous. Now, Joshua is giving a, his swan song of sort. One of it's not the last, but it's one of the, the the last things. He's aged now. He's he's on the other side of the ministry. He's getting ready to go home and be with the Lord, and and he's and he's speaking to the nation of Israel. This is what he says. He says, "Be therefore very courageous." The way the book starts with him is the way he leaves it with them. He's giving the other people the things that were entrusted to him. But it was up to the children of Israel to take those things and apply them in their life personally. It wasn't enough to look back and go, wow, Joshua was a man of God. Joshua went out and he discomfited the Amalekites. Joshua and Caleb did this. Joshua and Caleb did that. That was awesome. And it was awesome. God did great things. But now it's time for the next generation to take the sword and go forth. And he says, hey, be very courageous, right? Be be very courageous, not a little courageous, very courageous. That's a command, not a suggestion. And, And he says, be very courageous and keep to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Don't do a little of it. Do all of it. That ye turn not aside therefrom to the right hand or to the left. You see, beloved, what happens is we start to compromise. He says, don't be compromisers. <laughs> do everything that is written in the law. Don't go to the right hand. Don't go to the left hand. Do what is written in the law. And so it's easier to receive a blessing than it is to steward it, isn't it? Amen, amen. Now, you live in America, so don't tell me you don't know what I'm talking about. Right? All of us that are here, have we live in a place where we have received a blessing. Just by the nature, if you were born here, wow, boy, did you get the lottery, man. God just said, boop, here you go. You say, yeah, but I came up in poverty. <laughs> I came up in this. And, and you know what? There's a lot of bad situations in this, in this nation, for sure. And I know a lot of you have been touched by a lot of sin in your life. And yet, you're still blessed to be born in this country because there is an avenue. There is a way out. It's a beautiful place to be, or has been. But, boy, just having that blessing doesn't mean we're good stewards of it, does it? There comes a responsibility, and, and, and Joshua's laying it down. He's like saying, hey, guys, listen, you got to do what we did. you got to be very courageous. you got to be all in with the message. you got to be all in with what God says. you got to pick up the sword, and you got to go out to battle. you got to take out the enemies. I'm getting old. I'm going to retire. I'm not talking about me personally. But that's what Joshua's like. I'm ready to fade off the scene. Somebody's got to go forward. Would it be you? So under Joshua, Israel miraculously defeated the giants of the land. Military victory was not a problem. Obeying the word of God and his instructions for worship and governance was the weakness of the people. They were militarily strong, but they were they were administratively weak. It took them a long time to actually implement how to take over these blessings. Now we've got these places. Uh, <laughs> we got to quit going to battle and go out and take care of these cities. We've got to set up cities of refuge. We've got to start doing what the law says. So right off the bat, the, the, the managing of those blessings was somewhat difficult. In Joshua 23 and verse 6, Joshua commanded the children of Israel to be very courageous and to do all that is written in the word of God. And he makes it clear that the written word is the absolute authority for the nation of Israel. 
that God had established that in the, in the wilderness. He established it in the land. So don't deviate from what the preserved word of God says. It takes courage to stand with the Bible. Man, I am so thankful for all who stand with the Bible. There was a time when I was pastor of this church early on when I was wondering who else was going to stand with the Bible. I mean, I was preparing like, man, it's going to be our four no more. Uh, I don't know who else is going to hold fast to the faithful word. And then God brought forth the Living Faith Fellowship. And now, I mean, we have a whole network of churches. And I'm like, wow, there's, you know, more than 7,000 that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. Praise God for that. You're not alone. You're not alone. You've got the word of God. But now what are we going to do with it, right? What are we going to do with what we've got? Are we going to be very courageous? We become defenseless when we dishonor God's words. We dishonor God's words by placing false gods ahead of them. In verse 7 in Joshua 23 said that you come not among these nations, these that remain among you, neither make mention, highlight on mention of the name of their gods, nor cause to swear by them, neither serve them nor bow yourselves unto them. What will cause you to go out of the way? What caused Saul to go out of the way? What caused Israel ultimately to go out of the way? Well, they got close to the gods. Don't make mention of their gods, small g. Don't swear by them. Don't make an oath to them. Don't serve them. And don't bow yourselves. The last thing for sure, don't worship them. But you know, it's just a progression. It didn't start with worshiping them. It starts with just simply making mention of their name. You start, you start putting them above the name of God. <laughs> they become the priority. What is it? What is that priority? Your job, your recreation, your entertainment, your relationships. You start putting those things ahead of the God of the, of the universe that saved your soul. Then man, you got problems. And the next thing you know, you're swearing by them. Your confidence is in other things. You're making agreements with other things other than God and, and your commitments to other people, places and things start to outweigh the commitment that you made to Christ. And beloved, I, this is how it is in America. It's very, you're getting pulled at from all sides. And, and God is, is like a clarion call, as clear as the bell, going, go, go back and look at Israel. Look at what happened to them. What happened? They forgot who they were serving. And then the next thing you know, you, you, you start to serve those gods. And, and it takes up all your time, all your talent, all your treasure. And before long, whether you recognize it or not, that's where your worship is. So we grow defenseless when we lose our grip on God's word. Verse 8. Chapter 23, Joshua, verse, uh, chapter 23 and verse 8. But cleave. Oh, that's a sweet word, isn't it? Cleave unto the Lord your God. Genesis, you're to leave father and mother and cleave unto your wife, right? In Genesis, it's the first time we see that word cleave. We're to be close. We're to be intimate. We're to be secure in our relationship. But cleave unto the Lord your God as ye have done unto this day. Another way that we can look at that, since we're talking about swords today, is, is, is holding on, right? Holding fast, which I had a sword up here, right? Holding on to the word of God, cleaving to the word of God. In Titus 1, verse 9, the apostle Paul says, Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may, uh, by, that he may be by sound doctrine both, be able, I'm sorry, by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayers. Second Timothy 1, 13 says, Hold fast the form of sound words. Beloved, this Bible, we got to hold on to it. Now, God doesn't need us to, to, to preserve it for him. He's fully capable of that, but he has entrusted it to us. He has given it to us. He has put it in our hands. So guess what we need to do? We need to hold tight, hold fast. <clears throat> More specifically, not just to the concept of the word of God, but to the form of sound words. 
right? He's, he's not talking about just concepts. He's talking about the very words themselves. Why? Because we know when we study the Bible and we compare Scripture with Scripture, there are things that are in this Bible, in English in particular, that you cannot find anywhere else because it is about how the words are formed. Try to chase down the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven in any other Bible. You're going to have struggles. You're going to have issues. You're going to have, you're going to try to, try to, there's so many passages, passages in other Bibles that attack the deity of Christ. Why? Because the devil wants to diminish that edge of the sword. I'm not saying you can't go out and lop somebody's head off with one of those swords. I've led people to Christ out of a Dewey Reams Bible, for goodness sake. You can, you can get the job done. <laughs> but if I want, if I want to really know that I have the assurity of God's word, I got it right here. I got the sharp two-edged sword. And because not only do I have it, but I know that I have it, it puts me and it puts you in a position where we are responsible now to not only have it in our possession, but to do what God says with it. Because we are stewards of the word of God. Paul says, hold fast to the word of God. Hold fast to the form of sound words. Eliezer, the son of Dodo. What a man. Dodo. What's it? Who are you? Well, I'm, I'm Brian, the son of Dodo. So, anyway. No wonder this guy was tough, man. Eleazar, the son of Dodo, he held so tight to his sword. He went out to battle in in, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 23. He smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave unto the sword. He was like, "Mm, it's time for break. Everyone's gone. I've done the job. He can't get it out of his hand. He and his sword became one. Does that happen to you? The the Bible just rolls out of your lips, out of your mind, out of your heart. Why? Because after a while, it becomes one with you. My mom's here today. She might remember. When I was a little boy, or a little boy, when I was a young man, I feel like I was a little boy now because I'm getting old, I'd go to sleep at night when I first got saved, and I'd, I'd, I'd have the Bible playing on the radio or whatever, and I'm just trying to listen to it. I thought osmosis, right? If I sleep, maybe it'll get in there. You know, now it's, it's like it's hard to fit it in in between all the other distractions of life. Now, there is no, nothing more important than getting the Word of God in. It should become part of who we are. It should cleave to us. You just can't get it off. It is, it's attached to us. We cleave to the Word of God. We grow defenseless. We become one with it. But we grow defense, defenseless when we forget the great victories God has given over the, his enemies. In Joshua 23 and verse 9, the Bible says, The Lord hath driven out from you before great nations and strong. But as for you, no man hath been able to stand before you unto this day. Man, Joshua was saying, hey, guys, I don't know if you recognize this, but other than that one situation over there in Ai, you guys are like undefeated. I mean, you guys, God's brought you some victory. With this sword, with this Bible, we grow defenseless when we forget that God is is uh, for us and not against us. The devil ever trick you there? Joshua twenty three ten, uh, Joshua reminds them: One man of you shall chase a thousand for the Lord your God. He it is that fighteth for you, as he hath promised you. You you realize that God wants you to be victorious. He wants you to lead people to Christ. He wants you to make disciples. And you get all up in your head in the way thinking that your sin is not covered under the blood. You know, and you're like, oh, man, God can't use me. Well, quit blaspheming the Lord, man. God can use you and wants to use you. Just let him use you. Right? That is a, that's bad doctrine. God wants to use you. He can use you. He's died to use you. Your sin is not stronger than the power of the Spirit of God Almighty. Let him use you. Put yourself away and let God use you. We grow defenseless <laughs> when we forgive the great commandment. Yeah, even back in Joshua 23 and verse 11, take good heed therefore unto yourselves that ye love the Lord your God 
Now, of course, it doesn't say love your neighbor as yourself, but that's implied as well because they have the law. It starts with loving the Lord our God. And then it goes on to say holding on to um, <clears throat> holding on to what the world has to offer will, will limit us and make us defenseless. So we grow defenseless when we go back to our flesh. Sorry, I got my, my thoughts out of the line there. Joshua twenty three twelve. he goes on to say, Else if, if you do in any wise go back and cleave unto the remnant, see, cleave unto something else of these nations, <laughs> even <clears throat> these that uh, remain among you, and shall make marriages with them, and go in unto them, and they unto you. Holding on to, to, to what the world has to offer, there's, there's where I am in my notes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, right? When we go back and hang on to what's, what the world has to offer us, our flesh has to offer us, more specifically, it, it makes us defenseless. We're not all about picking up the sword and doing what God told us to do. Why? Because we're married to the world. We're cleaving to the wrong thing. Specifically, he says, hey, in one place he says, cleave to the Lord your God. In the next place he says, hey, don't, right? If you go back and cleave to the remnant, the remnant of the things of these nations, all the stuff, you remember what happened? Uh, the Babylonian garment, you thought that Babylonian garment was nice, right? You know what? It brought defeat to everybody in the congregation because you were cleaving that Babylonian garment, right? The sin of Achan. Remember not to go back and cleave what the world has to offer. Stay focused on the kingdom ahead, on the things above. And, of course, we're blessed right now uh, as far as this time in history because we have more of an opportunity now, I think, probably than ever, to be able to set aside uh, that desire to be, uh, you know, enamored with the things that, that that this world has to offer and focus on the things that are eternal, right? Because we know that the things of this earth, they just don't, they don't make it. They don't shine. They're going to have dross all over them. They're going to be burnt. So de- de- defeat is the only thing certain when we leave ourselves defenseless. In Joshua 23 and verse 13, number of rebellion, know for certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations before you, <clears throat> but they shall be snares and traps unto you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off the good land which the Lord your God hath given you. You're like, man, Brian, that's depressing. Why would you start there? Because actually that's where Israel's at. They're in a situation where they've been they've been driven off the land. They've got a king now. They're trying to make advances, but even that's sputtering and stuttering and they're mumbling, bumbling, and fumbling. It's all up in there. Nobody knows which way it's going to go. And so what do we need? Well, we need people to go back and look at Joshua 23 and remember what God has done in the, in the life of that na- nation so that they can go back and do it again. History does repeat itself. And it isn't just about having weapons. They can have all the weapons in the world, but if they're not able to use them, it's not going to matter. What he really needs, and that's why God actually redirected my message, what, it's not just the swords. We need a heart to get them where they need to go. I'm not going to say the place, but I, this week I had an opportunity to, to get the Bible into certain people groups that is an unreached people group. And I called a friend of mine, and I was, it was with Brother Money, Dale Money, with, with the first Bible. And he's like, can you get rid of the, or help me, not get rid of them, can you help me get the Bible where they need to go, right? And I'm like, hey, I think I might have a contact. I make a contact with a contact, and the contact gets back with me, and he says, hey, Man, you know those other hundred or whatever that you gave me? They're not going. Maybe down in this place I can get some, but we'll see. <laughs> we got thousands laid up in the barn. We got thousands of swords sitting in the armory. Not in our armory, but in another armory. Ready to go to the hearts of a key people group that are unreached. 
But you know what? The problem is the hearts of those people are not ready to receive the words of God. Not everybody wants the Bible. What's it, so we should just quit? Well, let's not make any Bibles for this particular people group. They happen to be numerous. They happen to hate us, by the way, religiously. What does that mean? Well, that means we should double down in our efforts to pray for them, to love them, to reach them until that sword penetrates the heart of that people group. And, beloved, I just ended my last message in the, in the seven realities about talking about how the world is this place. America is the, is the biggest sending nation. We're also the biggest receiving nation of missionaries. These people groups that are so hard-hearted against the Bible, they're right here with us. I'm not talking about somewhere over there. They're right here. We better be praying about that. We, we Heartland. You, I, we better take that seriously. We, he may even call one of us to get up and go do something about it. You may have to dedicate your life to, to figuring out how to slay, not physically, but spiritually, slay that giant. If that stirs your heart, come and see me. Because if you don't do anything, if you just get enamored with the things of this earth, what will happen is you lose the battle. And people's souls... I'm not talking about your standard of living. I'm not talking about your wealth. I'm talking about people's souls. Yeah, eventually you'll use your, you'll, you will lose your standard of living. you lose your wealth. And all. That's not the issue. The issue is why are we not obedient to the mission? Why are we not obedient to what the Word of God says? That is the issue for the church today. Not just in America, but all over the earth. We can find ourselves dominated, defenseless in a world that where we're dominated by the flesh and the devil and we choose not to fulfill God's words. God forbid that be us. It doesn't take long before the spiritual heart disease creeps in. You know what happens when you get heart disease? You get weak. You get tired. And before long, you might even want to grip that sword, man. You might want to go to battle, but man, you can't even, can't even pick it up anymore. Oh, just don't have the strength. Why? Because there's a heart problem. There's a heart problem. So the sword of the faithless leaves you delusional as well. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I'm getting to the main text, but I don't know. I may not get done today. So (laughs) uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, I'm not going to drive down too deep here, so just hang with me. But there's a dependence upon the sword of the faithless leaves us delusional. Instead of choosing repentance, the, child, the children of Israel chose to replicate the standards of the world. So in verses 1 through 5 of, of 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Bible says, And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn, uh, firstborn was Joel, the name of his second Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba, and his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. Well, how do you do? I mean, come on, man. That, ain't, that isn't what you want to reproduce. Verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Okay? Now make us a king to judge us like the other nations. What? So basically what they say is, Hey, you know what? This just isn't working for us, man. You're old. We like you. Your sons aren't old, but they're not square like you. We just need to have a king. So they use, they use the failures of his children as, a, as an excuse 
to chuck the whole system that God had given him. And that doesn't make God happy. It doesn't make Samuel happy. And there's no doubt that Samuel's sons were miserable failures, and they were, and they definitely were not what Israel needed. However, Israel didn't need to throw out the commandments of God. They needed to repent. They needed to seek God. They needed to restore the power and purpose of their nation around the word of God. They needed to find those that would stand with the word of God. Today, the influences of the church is slowly sliding away. Why? Because in the last at least 20 to 30 years, I've been in the kingdom of God for a little over 30 years. You know what? We've been oftentimes more concerned with assimilation with the culture instead of transformation of the culture. I, and I know that. I get all the emails. I get all the advertisements. It's all, and it is today. Uh, our speech is violent. Let's, let's, let's bring it down, this, that, and the other. Let's just get more and more and more weak. Forget the sword. Get out your goad, man. Just get out the, get out the, get out the farm implements. You're, you're, don't be warrior-like. Get domesticated. Get sophisticated. Yeah, well, you know what? Get ran over like a Mack truck is what's going to happen. These boys wanted to change the ball game, and God's like, nope, that's not really what I want. But God graciously warned them, point B, of exchanging God's standards for the world's standards. He didn't just let it go. He told them, he said, hey, guys, this isn't going to work well for you, but the thing displeased Samuel, verse 6 Chapter 8, when they said, give us a king to judge, and Samuel prayed unto the Lord, and the Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, and and that I should reign over them. They don't want my authority in their life anymore. They want to have it their way. I mean, they were listening to Frank Sinatra one day, and the next thing you know, they're gone. Some of you get that. He used to sing a song. I did it my way. That's it. According to the, so you know what? They're like, we just want it our way. We don't want the, the, the system that God wants. And so Samuel, verse 10, told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of the king. In verse 11, he said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. So he lays it out for him. He will take your sons and he will appoint, <clears throat> excuse me, he will appoint for them, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and some shall run before the chariots. He's going to script your boys into the army, and all that will appoint, uh, and he will appoint him captains over thousands, and captains over fifties, and he will set them, uh, uh, set them to ear his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war, and the instruments of his chariots. He's going to have a military industrial complex, and he's going to utilize your boys to run that thing. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to, and to be bakers. And he will take your fields. He's going to get your property and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take uh, the tenth of your seed of your vineyards and give to his officers and his servants. And he will take your manservants and your maidservants and your goodless young men and your asses and put them to his work. And he will take the tenth of your sheep, and he will be his servants. And ye shall cry out in, the, in that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. So Samuel just lays it out for him. says, this is what's going to happen. God just gives him the download. This is who you're getting. What you want is going to produce this. Having it your way is going to give you oppression. It's going to put you into servitude. It's going to put you underneath a yoke that you don't want to be bound with until you finally cry out to God and God's not going to be listening. 
There's a lot here, but a couple simple points to pull from this passage. Don't get so disillusioned by your family or your people that you quit praying for them. You know what Samuel says? He's like, man, I'm going to pray for y'all. He doesn't get discouraged. He doesn't say, well, fine then. I'm taking my ball and going home. I served you my whole life. I'm not going to go with you. Go, you get what you deserve. He doesn't cop an attitude. He doesn't sin against God. He continues to pray for God's people. He continues to work with them. And don't be be too eager to get your own way. You know, even Garth Brooks knew that, right? Sometimes you just got to thank God for unanswered prayers. It would have been so much better if God would have just said, no, you're not getting what you want. You just kind of work this out through, through Samuel. And we'll find some other boys uh, to replace his sons, but we, we are not going to go here. But by that time, God was tired of it. He's like, okay, is that what you want? This is what you're going to get. Now, Israel would not be able to say that they were not warned. What do you think, gang? Do we have enough knowledge to know what comes when we disobey the Lord? Are we not warned? I'd say so. I think we know. Point C, Israel's judgment is to reap what they've sown. Man, that's a tough judgment. They reap what they've sown. In verses 19 through 22, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Even after all of that, even after it's laid out for them, nobody said, oh, man. You know what? I believe the words of God. I think God's words are true. Samuel, thanks for sharing. Can we repent now? Let's change the direction here. Let's let's humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and see if he won't give us grace and mercy. And you know what? He would have. If they'd have just repented, if they'd have just turned their their face to him, you know what? He would have he would have acknowledged that and he would have he would have healed their land. But instead, this is what he got. Nah. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. You're too old, man. And, and they said, nay, but we will have a king over us. We're going to do what we want to do, that we may also be like unto the nations that are that <clears throat> that our king may judge us. And we want what everybody else is doing. And we want our king to go out before us. And we want our king to go out and fight our battles. Man, we're looking for a hero. We just need a leader. We just need a strong man. No, you don't need a strong man. You need a God man. Amen. Beloved, we live in a place right now where people are looking for leadership. Where's the leader? The leadership vacuum. We need strong men. We do need strong men. Don't misunderstand me. But more than strong men, we need God men. We need men that have God's heart, not just men that are strong, not just men that can that are wise, not just men that are savvy, not just men that are rich, not just men that are powerful. That's not what people need. They need Jesus Christ. He's the God man and we have him in us and they need this book and they need the truth of God's word. That is what we are stewarding in a dark nation. People are beguiled and they're deceived. They're just like the children of Israel and they forgot what put them here. And when we know better than God, we are in a dangerous place. When we know better than God, we're in a very dangerous place. You just had to have that relationship, right? Because you know better than God. You had to have that job because you know better than God. You got to have that vacation home because you know better than God. And now it feels like a weight that's too heavy to bear. I always tell people, by the way, the best time to get divorced is before you're married. If you've ever been through pre-marriage with me, you know I'm not lying. I'm very serious about that. Because once you're, once you're bound, man... 
you're bound. So do your due diligence. Once Israel was bound to Saul, man, they were stuck. That was their king. They should have divorced him when Saul, Samuel gave him the chance. It had been better for them. It had been better for Saul. But the sword of faithlessness leaves you desperate and distressed. Now we're in our text. Finally, Brian. Wow. So depending on the wisdom of, of man's power, it will cause you to be delusional, desperate, and, and, and distressed. When you depend on the wisdom of man's uh, power, when you're putting your faith in men, you'll become delusional, desperate, and distressed. So God gave Israel grace in spite of rebellion and disobedience. Can I hear an amen? Can any of us say, man, in spite of my rebellion and disobedience, God is so gracious. It is true. You can even see in the Old Testament. If they would have responded in 1 Samuel 8 and said, you know what? You're right, Samuel. You know you know God. I know God. What, he did, he, what would he have done? He would have said, okay, I'm going to work with you. I'm going to put you back on track. This is what you need to do. This is your next right step. But, boy, sometimes we just we get what we choose. And, man, that's not a good thing. But when we choose God, he, does, he is gracious. And God is willing to work with them even if they simply obeyed his word and prioritized him. First Samuel 12 lays out all the gracious terms, by the way, and I, I wish I had time to get into it. You can go home today and read chapter 12, and you'll see all these gracious terms where God says, okay, they made their bed, now I feel sorry for them. So this is what I'm going to do to give you some grace so that you can be successful. And he still offers them an opportunity to make this bad deal good. The problem is there's a tale of two swords. And so that sets up the tale of two swords. And you'll see in chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, Saul signed a, uh, reigned, I'm sorry, reigned one year. And when he, he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel. Therefore, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the Mount Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people, he set every man to his tent. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all of Israel heard say that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel also was had an abomination with the Philistines. And the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. Now as they go to Gilgal... Uh, the, the troops from the Philistines end up regathering in Michmash, the very place where Saul was at. So they end up occupying his his territory. So this is what happens here in verses 1 through 4. Uh, Saul claims the victory of his son. The one who came and took on the garrison was Jonathan, not Saul. But the message that went out throughout the whole nation is, guess what? Saul just defeated the Philistines. And everybody's like, yeah, that's what we knew it. We knew it, man. He's the strong man. We're getting behind that fella. Let's all go to war. Let's go gather in Gilgal. Now, this has all been worked out that uh, when they did go to fight the Philistines, they would meet in Gilgal, and I believe it's chapter 8. But that's another discussion in chapter 10. Anyway, this is what we don't want to do. Point A, we don't want to claim victories that are, that are not our own. Because when we do that, it leaves us desperate and distressed. I don't think Saul took the time to think this through, but he's fixing to get in a fight with an army he can't beat. Not in his flesh. <clears throat> Saul took 2,000 troops to himself, and he gave 1,000 troops to Jonathan. Now, Saul's name means desired one. 
And that's what he is. He's the one that everyone desired. He's the leader that they all wanted. But when it come right down to it, he didn't have God's power. And he's a picture of the coming Antichrist who will lead Israel in direct conflict with the will of God in destruction in Daniel's 70th week. He'll be a strong man, all right, but he ain't the strong man that Israel needs. Jonathan's name means Jehovah has given. He was a gift that God gave to the nation of Israel. He was obedient. He was faithful to his father, Saul. He was obedient and faithful to his friend, David, in latter years. And Jonathan is a picture of the saints that give their lives valiantly for the testimony of Christ. Saul has a sword, but he doesn't he doesn't use it. We don't actually see him engage his sword in the text that we're going to see this morning. Jonathan defeated a garrison in Geba. And this garrison, what is a garrison, by the way? It's a it's a fortified outpost. So this was like a heavily armored place. So so Jonathan doesn't just like go pick guys out on a route. Like they're going out, some some you know, scouts going out, he's just, oh I'm gonna pick him off. I'm just going to trouble him, right? You know, like the American Revolution. We're just going to go out and, you know, guerrilla warfare. No, not, that's not Jonathan. He just goes straight to the garrison <laughs> and runs them off. He's got a thousand men. He's like, oh man, if well, let me do the math. If I got a thousand and one man can run out off a thousand, man, I'm in good shape. Let's go. So he just goes straight to the garrison and runs them right out of there. And and so he 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 stirs up the hornet's nest. And. And we and, and so what happens is the Philistines respond. We become desperate when we refuse to count the cost, however. Saul and Israel were not prepared for the battle. We, we might say Saul bit off more than he could chew there in verse 5 because the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. They weren't playing. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash, which is where he was, eastward of Beth Avon. So Saul and Israel were not prepared for this. Now Jonathan was, but as a whole, nobody was really ready for what they were getting into. Thirty thousand chariots—that's a lot. That'd be like having thirty thousand tanks in today's vernacular. I mean, if he was going to war, okay, we're going to go out against thirty thousand armored tanks with our three thousand. And, and then there's six thousand horsemen, right? Cavalry. You know, cavalry was effective even at the turn of this century. Or no, the last century, I'm sorry. The 1900s. Spanish-American War, first part of the, 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 uh, the, first part of the uh, World War I. They were still using horses. They're, draw, they're drawing stuff around with horses. They're using horses. I mean, even in Afghanistan recently, some guys got up, some special forces got on horses. That's a true story. And, and they traversed the terrain and went to war on horses. Horses, 6,000 horses is no joke. And so innumerable troop resources on top of that. I mean, it was like reminiscent of the Chinese at the Chosen Reservoir. I mean, they, the people were so many in number at the Chosen Reservoir in the 1950s that, that when the Chinese sent their people, and they didn't have guns for them. They didn't have enough weapons. So they just sent them charging straight at our troops. I mean, 50 caliber. You couldn't mow them down fast enough. They eventually made it. They over. They flooded the our own our borders, man. I mean... It was amazing just how ridiculously crazy and insane that number of troops was. I mean, they have millions of people, and they don't care about their people. And so they just throw them at you. It's insane. Uh, Man, you should read about that sometime. Some brave men there fighting off off the uh, Chinese in Korean War. But they had those kind of numbers, is my point. Even in today's warfare, you can have, even in today's military, with all the weapons... 
if you can amass enough people, you, you can spend all their ammunition and just keep them coming. Unbelievable. Uh, until they run out of ammo. And so it was quite a situation, quite distressing. And, and what happens when we get distressed like that is we hide from the battle. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, it says, for the people were distressed. And the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was in Gilgal. And all the people followed him trembling. And they didn't see the battle through the eyes of faith like Joshua, like Caleb, like the victorious judges of the past. Right? They were in fear. They were in hiding. And when they saw that they were in a bad spot, a very tight place, well, they began looking for the chicken exit. And you could find the people standing down instead of standing up. In a time of war when people need to stand up, when people need to go forward into the battle, you know what the people were doing? They were running for their lives. We're not just talking about anybody. These are the people that God had set aside to occupy this land. These are the people that God had put there to bring the victory. And they're hiding in caves. They're going underground. They're in the thickets. Right, hiding in the brambles, they're in the rocks in the wilderness, they're they're in the high places trying to stay above the fray, and they're in the pits underneath the radar. Man, they're just going anywhere they can to to avoid the conflict. Why? Because they have no confidence that God's going to deliver them. And the distress run from the battle. In verse seven, they run to the wilderness for safety. They go to Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh. And they look for other people's inheritance and they try to go there because they don't believe that God will work right where they are. They don't believe that. Because they're distressed from the focus on the enemy instead of focusing on the Savior. The distressed tend to do that. They focus on what's wrong. They focus. It's always half empty. They focus on the enemy instead of the Savior. In verses 8 and 10, and he tarried seven days according to the set time that Saul Samuel had appointed, but Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me, and a peace offerings. And he offered and burnt the offering, and it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of the offering and the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Samuel went out to meet him, that he might salute him. You see, Saul didn't run. He didn't hide, but he also didn't wait on the Lord. Now, to be fair... It wasn't just like you or I, just like, oh, I didn't know what to do. I don't want to do. I read that several times thinking, well, I kind of feel sorry for Saul. I mean, he's kind of freaking out. I mean, it's like, Samuel, when are you coming? But it wasn't like that. Well, how do you know it wasn't like that? Well, because I have the Bible. Over in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 8, months earlier, they had already had the discussion. And Samuel told him, go to Gilgal. Wait seven days, and I will come, and I will sacrifice. It was already spoken. It was already written. God already had it down. But, but Saul just couldn't wait. <laughs> he couldn't wait on the Lord for his deliverance. Right? Sometimes that's what we do. We, we get ahead of ourselves. We get ahead of God, and we just can't wait. We've got to take it into our own hands. And God says, just lay back and let me do what I told you I would do. This had dire consequences for Saul. Because he lost his, his inheritance. Saul had forgotten God's promises. And Saul had forgotten God's track record. And he forgot that Gideon put an innumerable army to flight with just 300 men. His troops were down to 600. He was still, he still had half a cut. 
And he still could have got the victory. But he didn't believe. He didn't remember. He, did, he wasn't going where Gideon was going. Right? He was, putting his, his, he was putting his faith and his confidence in the things that he could control. Beloved, sometimes we get distressed. We get stressed, man. We get in situations that we freak out. And we don't let God have the control that he wants for our lives. And so this, that's where I'm going to stop this morning. I'll pick this up later, but that, that's a good spot just to pause. Because maybe God is doing something in your life today, and he wants to, he wants to, he wants to bring you to a point where, where you're not stressed, you're not distressed, but you're resting in him. Saul lost his inheritance here. He says right after that, Samuel says, hey, Saul, you're an idiot. He didn't say it quite like that. You're a fool. If you would have just waited like we talked about, obviously he would have gotten the victory. God would have been gracious in that victory. But more importantly, he had a chance to be a king that David became. We only know his heart because it's been revealed to us from Scripture. But at that time, if his heart would have been true to God, if he would have put his eggs in God's basket, it would have been an amazing victory. But he didn't. He wanted to take it on himself. He was trying to desperately find a way to get out of that situation by saving face because his heart was full of pride at a time when he had to be full of humility. Beloved, the, the issue when we talk about the tale of two swords and how this sword gets used, ultimately it boils down to that, doesn't it? Because the sword of, we'll talk about next week, the sword of faithlessness results in disobedience. What's God calling you to be obedient about today? What's he want you to do? What is the next right thing in your life? Maybe it's obedience needs to turn from something to him. Maybe it's something that you're omitting that you need to do. But whatever it is, let God have that in your life and let him do it. And I want to commend you guys as well. I want to just encourage you after what a strenuous week. (laughs) I throw a strenuous message on you. But I hope you're encouraged because you know what? I know a lot of y'all, man, you're all in. You are putting Bibles together. You're praying. You know these Bibles that we've assembled are going to key places. We are in the battle. And I just don't want you to lose heart. I don't want you to lose hope. I don't want you to get distracted by all the noise out there, all the other messages, all the other stuff that's going on. Now, it doesn't mean you don't need to know about what's going on. But at the end of the day, don't lose hope because, listen, you are the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. Don't let, just let me rephrase that. He's the hope of the world, but you are. You are the ambassador for Christ. You are the light that shines in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. You are the people that in the midst of distress and chaos, inflation, deflation, you know, whatever else, you are the folks that are on track because you understand there's another king, another kingdom, and there is power in the sword that you possess. It's the difference between two hearts, right? Two hearts. Do you have a heart of the flesh or are you allowing God to change your heart? When you get saved, he gives you a new heart. Right? Do you have heart disease? Maybe you've allowed, even though you're born again, you've allowed things to come into your life, and you can feel that you're getting weaker and weaker and weaker. I don't mean physically. I've seen some pretty physically weak people have incredible strength spiritually. And even in their dying moments, they are so strong. Why? Because their faith is secure in the promises of God. Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to meditate upon your word and give ourselves wholly to it. Lord, this, uh, I will visit this again later. I pray, God, that you just continue to teach us your words and help us to understand how important it is 
Lord, to have a heart for the Word of God. And I haven't get, gotten to the good news, but I, I look forward to the other side of this sermon because I know in this, in this congregation there are a lot of people who have a heart for you, Lord, and there's great victories ahead for them, not in a prosperity gospel sense, but in a very real spiritual, tangible sense where people's souls will be saved, disciples will be made, uh, the, the, the impact of Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago will become relevant in time right now. And, Lord, uh, Lord it's amazing uh, what you want to do. Lord, it is uh, in your hand to save not by many or few. Lord, it doesn't matter the numbers, and it matters that the number, which is you. Lord, I pray, God, that we'd be wholly given to following you, that we would set aside all the other stuff that distracts us and keep our attention focused solely on you this morning. With heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as Savior, I just want to offer this extension of grace. Maybe today is the day you need to get saved. This really wasn't an evangelistic message, but I just need you to know that Jesus came to this earth. He is the man. We all fell. We all fall short. We all fail. We all fall short. But Jesus Christ came to this earth 2,000 years ago, and he won the battle that no one else could win. His name, he is literally as a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He is the word of God. That's what his name is. And when you put your faith in him, he will deliver you from the greatest enemy, which is sin and death, and he will secure you for all of eternity. So if you're here this morning and you don't know him as Lord and Savior, but you want to, would you just simply say, Brian, I, I do want to know him as Lord and Savior. Just raise your hand right where you are. And we'll come to you. Anybody at all? Say, Brian, that is me. Amen. Well, let's uh, conclude in a word of prayer. If you're here this morning and say, Brian, I just need a word of prayer. Just pray for me. I'd be happy to, to, to lift you up. I see several hands. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, uh, as your saints lift up their hands to you, Lord, I pray that the word of God would just settle in their hearts. And, and Lord, whatever we need to apply, it would just stick and and, Lord, whatever needs to be washed away would be washed away. Whatever decisions need to be made would be made. Lord, I pray, God, that you would continue to encourage your people in your word. Lord, I want to thank you and praise you for the privilege and opportunity to assemble your word. I, th- I want to thank you for all the many people, both in our church and, and outside of our church, that labored uh, intensely this week uh, to assemble uh, to uh, assemble your words. And, Lord, we still pray, God, for the impact that they will have in Ukraine. We pray for the faithful men. We pray for the Jonathans that will be in the field in Ukraine, God. I pray, God, you'd get these Bibles in the right hands so they can get to the right places in the right time. Lord, I know you have mighty men awaiting them, and I pray, Heavenly Father, that you continue to protect and keep them as well. Lord, I pray, God, a blessing this morning on the preaching, the hearing, and the living of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, thank you for coming this morning. We're going to take up the offering here in just a moment. If you